we are going to be jumping right into our conversation regarding the resurrection of the dead. So just to reset, this course is called Resurrection of the Dead, and it's about the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead is one of the primary beliefs, articulations of faith in Judaism, and it gives us a lot of food to, uh, um, to chew on. In other words, a lot of, uh, a lot of things to think about vis-a-vis our own lives today. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that the topic of resurrection is not just what's going to happen at some future time, but it's also, and maybe even primarily, lessons about what is going on in our lives today and how we are meant to live our lives. We're going to discover some more really deep ideas and insights into life, the lives that we're living right now, using the resurrection of the dead as a guide. All right, so it is, uh, let's see who just jumped in. Steve just jumped in. Welcome. It's great to have you. And Mark, it is great to have you as well. Okay. So let's jump into today's discussion. If you saw the email, so you saw that the, the class today is entitled Discovering Your Deepest Self. And that topic is really at the heart of what we are focusing on today, the idea of discovering your deepest self. As we'll see, oftentimes we live a life that is lived on the fringes. I don't mean on the talit, the tzitzit, no. On the fringes, meaning not in the deepest place that we can be. And so the goal is to live our deepest life, to access our authentic self. We're going to explore this from the perspective of Judaism using the resurrection of the dead as a guide. All right, we're going to start the texts from where we started last week with the Mishnah from Sanhedrin. Remember, if you recall, there was a Mishnah that we explored from the Tractate Sanhedrin that spoke about the idea of the belief in the resurrection. I'm going to share this with you, and we are going to have our first text and conversation starting pretty much right now. Okay, Resurrection of the Dead. I know it says Lesson 1, but I'm still using this text, this source sheet that I put together for Lesson 1 for the opening of today's session. Um, Dr. Maxi, please begin with the Mishnah Sanhedrin, and uh, we're going to reanalyze this. Take it away. Mishnah, all of the Jewish people, even sinners and those who are liable to be executed with a court-imposed death penalty, have a share in the world to come, as it is stated. And your people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands for my name to be glorified. And these are the exceptions, the people who have no share in the world to come, even when they fulfilled many mitzvot, one who says there is no resurrection of the dead derived from the Torah and one who says the Torah did not originate from heaven, and an Epicurus who treats Torah scholars and the Torah that they teach with contempt. Thank you. And again, I want to just remind everybody, this is the same Mishnah we studied last, this is the same Mishnah we studied last week. Um, it's talking about the, um, it's talking about Give me a quick second. 
It's talking about the uh, the idea of the world to come, Olam Haba, which, by the way, last week we had two different interpretations as what as to what the world to come is, right? Is the world to come a, a, a reality with just souls, as Maimonides said, or souls and bodies, as Nachmanides says? Well, the accepted opinion is souls and bodies, and that's what we're going to go with. So we say here that everyone is going to have a share. And I know it says Jewish people. The truth is the idea of resurrection is for everyone, um, everyone in accordance with their obligations and responsibilities. The point here is that everyone has a share in this, but there's an exception. In fact, the Mishnah shares three exceptions, but we're going to focus once again on the first exception. Here are the exceptions. And the number one exception, the first one listed is one who says there is no resurrection of the dead derived from the Torah. That is the first exception to enjoying the resurrection. The person who says, I don't believe in a resurrection derived from the Torah. I want to point out something, but the truth is I want you to point out something odd from this reading. What is, what does a person have to say or believe to be excluded in this first exception, I hope you understand my question. What is, what are they saying, right, to not get the, or believing to not merit the resurrection based on the, the text that I highlighted? Please jump in. Somebody tell me what is the exception. They don't believe because there's no proof. They don't believe because there is no proof. Good. Um, it does. Okay. Okay. Good. Well, who else? Yeah, Stanley. Don't forget to unmute. I asked you to unmute. So if you just hit that button that pops up, you should be good. Can you hear, hear me now? Yes. It looks like you're not excluded from resurrection unless i mean you can believe in resurrection but it's not enough you have to believe that your belief derives from the torah you could believing in it is not enough you have to believe it in the torah excellent excellent analysis in fact in fact a very talmudic analysis because none other than rashi points out your diuk. What's a diuk? Diuk means an analysis. So Stanley just analyzed this piece of the Mishnah, and he said, it doesn't say that one who says there is no resurrection of the dead is excluded from the resurrection. It says there's the, one, the person who says there's no resurrection of the dead derived from Torah. That's the person who's excluded, which means that it's not enough to say, I believe in the resurrection. But one has to say, I believe that the resurrection comes from the Torah. I believe that it's sourced in the Torah, which is exactly what the Talmud proceeds to explore, which we discussed last week, right? I scroll down here from where is it derived from the Torah, etc. But the mission is telling, and, and we brought six, seven, eight different proofs, and I mentioned them last week. We're not going to go over it again. The point is, that there are proofs or at least allusions to it in Torah. And the Mishnah is saying that somebody who says, I don't believe that the resurrection of the dead comes from Torah, that person 
is excluded even if they believe in the resurrection. How do I know this? How do I know that that's interpretation of the Mishnah? Maybe it's maybe it means something else. So I'll tell you. Rashi, I already told you, but I'll tell you again. Rashi is the one who says this clearly. Let me make this a little bit larger. I know this, uh, the text here is a little bit fuzzy, but we're going to power through it. Donna, please, if you don't mind, Donna, please unmute. And I hope you can read it. Please take it away. One who says there is no support for the concept of the resurrection of the dead in the Bible. The Mishnah speaks of one who denies the various scriptural allusions to the resurrection of the dead taught later in the Talmud. Even if the denier admits that the dead will indeed arise, but does not concede that such a prospect is alluded to in the Torah, they are considered a kofer. And kofer, no one wants to be a kofer. That's, you don't want to be a kofer, <laughs> right? That, that person would be a kofer. You don't want to be a kofer. I don't want to be a kofer. We all don't want to be a kofer. So, but again, exactly as Stanley said, exactly as Stanley was medayik, I'm teaching you, Talmudic terminology here. The diak was, the Mishnah doesn't say, the one who says, I don't believe in resurrection is the one excluded. It's the one who says, I don't believe that resurrection has a source in Torah. That person is excluded, which means that even if they do believe, let's say they say, let's say a person says, you know, I logically believe that there's a resurrection, that there'll be a resurrection. I've done the math. I've done the science. And I believe that it makes sense that at some point in time, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. I'm a believer. You know what the mission says? Not for you. <laughs> Not for you, because you didn't believe that it comes from Torah. All right, friends, ask the question. No, what's the question? That's what the mission says. What's the question? Why? That means the resurrection is only for Jews. Hold on. That's not my question. Pause. Hold on. One second. One second. The Torah doesn't only say regarding Jews, but again, Based on the based on the Mishnah and based on Rashi, Rashi says that the Mishnah is telling us that the resurrection of the dead is for everyone except for one who says, "I don't believe that the resurrection is sourced in Torah." What's the obvious question? I heard. Why? Not? I think Stan, why? why not? What's the problem? So what if I don't believe that it's in the Torah? I believe in the resurrection. I'm going to get penalized because I don't believe in the sources that are cited. Who cares? In other words, if I believe, I believe. A kofer means a heretic, one who denies, right? One who's a, a denier of truth. So who's denying? I believe in the resurrection. I believe it's going to happen. I have my own sources for believing in this. So I don't believe it's sourced in Torah. Big deal. Well, well, why does that fundamentally change? Because it's not saying that it comes from God. All right. Okay. I hear that. I hear that. But at the end of the day, they're not denying the resurrection. They believe in the resurrection. And I, furthermore, by the way, furthermore, I must tell you, they, um, one second, let me go back to the Mishnah. I'm just going to go back to it on my own. I'm not going to share it again right now. The Mishnah said that the second exception is somebody who does not believe that the Torah comes from heaven. So the pro the, the non-believer in Torah is already excluded. So why are we mixing it into this exclusion to the first? That's the second exclusion. Why do we mix it into the first exclusion? In other words, the person who says, I don't believe Torah is divine. I, I don't know. Somebody wrote it, whatever. 
that person would say, all right, resurrection, not for you. But why is it that the person who does believe in the resurrection? Oh, hold on one second. I think, did I share with you the Talmudic analysis of why the one who doesn't believe in the resurrection doesn't get the resurrection? Did I explain that last week? Did I mention it? I don't think so. All right. So you know what? Let me share my screen. Let's do, let's do this together. Okay. Let me show you something. The Talmud says uh, right here. And why is one punished to that extent? And the Talmud answers, he denied the resurrection of the dead. Therefore, he will, he, therefore he will not have a share in the resurrection of the dead. Notice, since the per, that person denies the resurrection, they're not going to enjoy the resurrection. Mida, Kenegan, Mida, as all measures dispensed by God are measure for measure. In other words, you say you're opting out, you're opted out. I don't believe in it. Then it's not going to happen for you. Mida, Kenegan, Mida, measure for measure. So now I really have a good question, right? Yeah, our question is really good. I, who says I don't believe in resurrection? I believe in resurrection, right? When the poll is asked, who believes in the resurrection? My hand goes up. It's just that the person saying, I, I'm not going to say mine because let me not, not say this about myself, but it's just that the person is saying, the, so, so the poll is asked, do you believe in resurrection? And that guy says, yeah, perfect. He just says, yeah, but I don't believe that there's a source in Torah for it, but I believe it anyway. Makes sense to me. I have another reason to believe in it. Who knows? So we say, you're out. Sorry, not for you because you don't believe. I do believe. You don't believe that it comes from Torah. Who cares? The Midah Kenegan Midah is if you don't believe in resurrection, then you're not going to get resurrection. This guy believes in resurrection. Are you with me on the question? He believes in the resurrection. He's just saying, I don't see a source for it in Torah. And that's enough? No soup for you. Right? Okay. So, so that's, uh, yeah, check the comments. So that's enough to say no resurrection for you, right? Because you're not even denying resurrection. You're just saying, I don't know about the Torah part of it. That's it. Out. What's going on here? I want to ask you a few more questions. I want to ask you a few more questions. And these are kind of random resurrection and uh, messianic related, Mashiach related questions. And you'll see throughout the class that we're going to answer all of these questions with one perspective, which is going to be really cool. I think it's going to be really cool. I think you'll, you will be on board with me on that. Okay, second question. So first question is, why is it so important to believe that the resurrection has a source in the Torah? Who cares why I believe in it? I believe in it. I should be okay. Why not? Second question. Remember Maimonides and his 13 principles of faith? Yeah, Maimonides, he had 13 articulations of things that Jews believe in, right? Top 13 list. Okay. Um, who can, unmute yourself if you can remind me, remind all of us, what was principle number 12? The second, the penultimate, as they say, the second to last principle of faith. Who remembers? What was that one? Number 12. Who's got it? Mashiach. Mashiach. Yes. Number 12 is Mashiach. And who remembers what number 13 is? The last of the 13 principles of faith. Number 13 is? Survey says? 
Who remembers? Resurrection. Resurrection. Yes, thank you, Sarah. Resurrection of the dead. Good. So number 12 is the belief in Mashiach, that there will come the Messianic era, the Messiah, and all that good stuff. And number 13 is that at some point in the Messianic era, those who have passed on will come back to life. Okay. Um, in fact, just quickly flipping through. Okay. All right. Yeah. So principle 12 is, number 12 is, Mashiach will come. I believe in the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Messianic era. Okay. And number 13 is belief in the resurrection of the dead. I want to ask you a question that you might have thought before. I don't know that we've ever asked it, but I think it's a good question. And I think we need to ask it right now. The question is, why is principle, why is the belief in the resurrection of the dead its own unique principle of faith. When it comes to belief in Moshiach, in the Messianic era, there are multiple things that we believe are going to happen at that time. We believe that Elijah the prophet is going to come to announce the arrival of Moshiach. We believe that Moshiach is going to restore, um, restore Jewish sovereignty. And we believe that Moshiach is going to rebuild the temple and gather in the exile of the Jewish people back to the, back to the Holy land. Correct. Yes. Thumbs up. If those are all parts of the messianic era, we also believe that in the messianic era, at some point, those who have passed on will come back to life. It seems to be another detail in the larger belief in the messianic era. So we believe in Mashiach, which means we'll have Elijah and Mashiach and sovereignty and a temple and the gathering of the exiles and the resurrection of the dead. So it seems like it's all part of one thing. Notice that Maimonides didn't start breaking every detail out as a separate independent principle of faith. Correct? Yes? It's not like principle number 12 is Mashiach. Number 13 is about Elijah preceding Mashiach. Number 14 is about Jewish sovereignty. Number 15 is about... Rebuilding the temple. Number 16 is about um, in gathering the exiles. Number 17, resurrection of the dead. No, it just gives us one general thing. We believe in Mashiach. We anticipate its arrival and Messianic era. Bring it on. Great. So why is one of those many details broken out into its own articulation of faith, into its own principle of faith? Why is the resurrection of the dead Principle number 13, why not just have it included in principle number 12 without even mentioning it as a separate principle? You with me on the question? Yes. Why does it earn its own place on the list? It should be included in Messianic era-related activities. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. We have a whole slew of activities. Listen, we just finished a few weeks ago. We finished a six-week course on the Messianic era. And we talked about a lot of things that are going to happen. One of them is a the resurrection of the dead. Why does Rambam, why does Maimonides pull that one detail out and separate it out from the larger collective of belief of Mashiach and break it out into its own separate belief principle? That's my second question. Question number three. 
For question number three, we have to introduce a very puzzling piece of Talmud that will probably make you regret sign if you did sign up to the last course and to this course, right? You're gonna you're gonna start demanding a refund once we read this next text. Are you ready for it? You're probably wondering what am I even talking about? Trust me, you'll see in a moment as I share my screen with y'all. Here we go. Let's jump to text number three. A one-liner from the Talmud Tractate Sanhedrin. It's a one-liner. Take a look. Let's ask, let us ask um, Stan. Stan Pollock, please read text number three. Mashiach will come when our mind is diverted. Thank you. Now, let me explain what that means when our mind is diverted, because I'm not so keen on that translation. The Talmud says, I'm going to read it in the Hebrew. Mashiach ba, Mashiach, the Messiah will come. When we're not expecting it. When our minds are elsewhere. When we're not thinking about it. Okay, this leads me to two questions. Number one, why? Why is Mashiach going to come when we're not thinking about Mashiach? And number two, so then why are we thinking about Mashiach? Why are we talking about Mashiach? We should not talk about Mashiach and then Mashiach will come. Are you with me on this? Yes? Are you thinking like, had we not done the course of Mashiach, had we diverted our attention, had we not been thinking about it, boom, we would have had it. We're, we keep on talking about Mashiach, 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 Mashiach. And the next thing you know, we still don't have Mashiach. And the Talmud says, Mashiach is Rabbi Hesach Hadas, when we're not thinking about it. So why are we thinking about it? It's not only a question on, on the courses that we've been doing the last little bit. It's also a question on, frankly, on Maimonides. Why are you including in the principles of faith? Everyone's going to talk about it. And the tefillah, the prayer. Why are we asking for Mashiach a half a dozen times in the Amidah of 19 blessings? At least a third of them are about Mashiach and Mashiach-related things. I mean, we've talked about this before in other classes and courses. You can look through your Amidah and your prayer book in whatever language you prefer, and you'll see talks about restoration of Zion, Davidic dynasty, um, return to the land, all that good stuff related to, to Mashiach. It's all in there. Blessing after blessing after blessing. Why are we obsessed with Mashiach if the Talmud says that it's going to come when we're not thinking about it, when our attention is diverted elsewhere? So let's divert our attention. Bring it on. Why are we focused on it? And I guess more fundamentally and conceptually, what, what does that even mean? That Mashiach is only going to come when we're not thinking about Mashiach. What kind of business is this? What kind of like, what, is, what does that even mean? That we're not thinking about Mashiach, so Mashiach is going to come. What's, why would one trigger the other? Is it a game? It's like, I'm only going to give it to you when you stop asking. Like what? That's, that's a thing? What is it? It's a game that God is playing? What does it even mean? Um, distracted. Yeah, okay, but why does it, but what's the conceptual connection between Mashiach's arrival and our distraction? Um, oh, Alex, I'm just looking at the, at the, at, the um, at all of the chats right now. Um, Alex asked before, is the resurrection then limited to those who believe in the absolute truth of Torah? It would seem like that from from the Mishnah, but we cannot rule, we cannot like have an absolute from the Mishnah and without commentary. So it's very hard to isolate that and jump into it. So 
That's a topic of much more elaboration. The Talmud elaborates on it. What, what does it mean to believe in the absolute truth of Torah? So let, that's a bigger topic. It's a great question. It's a big topic. Let's leave that aside for right now. Mark said, no soup for you. Adina Malka, I believe in resurrection because 13 articles Facebook covers me. Good. Um, and mom said, distraction. Okay, so we're left with three questions. Good. All good comments. We're left with three questions. Question, let's see if we can remember them, right? Question number one is, why is it so important to believe that the resurrection of the dead has a source in Torah? Who cares? You believe? Great. Come on, come on down. Come on, part of the resurrection. You're a believer. No, I have to believe that it comes from the Torah. Why is that such an essential element? That was question number one. Remember the, the Mishnah and Rashi? You have to believe that it's not only, your, not only you have to believe in, in, in the resurrection, but that it's sourced in Torah. Why? Question number two is why does Maimonides, Rambam, why does he pull out the resurrection as its own um, uh, article of faith, of Jewish faith, foundational element, of, uh, article of Jewish faith. 12 is belief in Mashiach, 13, belief in the resurrection of the dead. Isn't that a part of Mashiach? Why is it separated out on its own? And the third question was, that we just asked, was why is Mashiach coming only when we are distracted, when we're not thinking about Mashiach? What's, uh, what's the connection? And, and, and if that's the case, then why do we talk so much about Mashiach? Why do we think so much about Mashiach? Why are we learning so much about Mashiach? Aren't we working against ourselves in a, in a, in a backwards way? These are three questions. They're all kind of related. They're all Mashiach, resurrection of the dead related questions. But I don't know that we would find necessarily a common thread that ties them all together. But we are going to find, what we are going to find tonight is that there is a common thread in the answer. How we resolve these questions is going to be with the, with the same perspective. So let's start with some resolutions. Let's start, I don't mean like New Year's resolutions, but let's start by resolving some of these questions. But first, I need to present a truth about the human condition. Because to understand these very big, cosmic, universal themes, we need to look inside. Tell you a story. Once a father was very busy. He was in his office, his home office, and working at night. His son, he had a, a, a young son, his son wanted his attention. He was very busy. He's working and phone calls and emails and all of this stuff, research, whatever it is. He's working very hard. And he tells his son, I, I don't have time to talk. I'm, I'm working. So, but the son keeps on asking for some attention, asking to play, whatever it is. Finally, the father looks and he sees a magazine. And on the cover of the magazine is a map of the globe. It's like a picture, like a, a world map, a world map. So he rips off the cover from the magazine and he tears up the cover he tears the cover up into little squares, creating some sort of, you know, impromptu um, puzzle. And he gives his child the puzzle pieces, the pieces of the, of the magazine. And he says, all right, so stay busy while I'm finishing up work. Stay busy. 
this should take you uh, a, a, a bit of a, some, some time, put together the map of, you know, the map of the, the, the map of the world. Well, within a few minutes, the kid comes back and the map is done. Father is astounded. He's like, how do you, he figured there's no way his kid would be able to map, put together all the countries in Europe, Asia, and, and Africa, and South America, and, United, and, and, and North America. How, how is this child able to do it so quickly? So he asked his son, he's like, how are we able to do it so quickly? So the son turns over the map because on the other side of the magazine, there was a picture of a face. So when he ripped it up, on the one side, on the front cover, there was a picture of the globe, picture of the world, map of the world. But on the back, on the, which the inside cover of the magazine, there was like an advertisement with a picture of the face. So the child said, I just flipped over all the pieces and I put together the face that I know how to put together. And as they say in, uh, in Talmudic analysis, automatically the, uh, the map was done, which reminds us of a fundamental truth in life. And that is as we heal the fragmented human, we also heal the universe. Yeah. As the individual goes, so does the universal. In the language of scripture, it says, Gam et haolam natan belibo shaladam. The world too was placed in the heart of the human being, which means that we have the power to change the world. I mean, in recent history, sorry, in recent, uh, not history, in recent times, We've seen the power of individual acts to radically change the world. One tiny virus, right? How big is the virus? How big? How big? This big? No, not that big. This big? No, not that big. This big? This big? That microscopic. One tiny thing can change the world. One person can change the world. And so to understand these big questions about these big changes in the world, Mashiach and resurrection of the dead, let's pop the hood of the human being. Let's look inside. What drives us? What's going on inside of the human being? I want to focus the conversation on a very interesting idea. And that is that most of what we want is a lie. It's a lie. It's not true. Most of the things that we believe that we want, most of the things that we say that we want are a lie. It's not true. Why I say that? So think about it. Most of what we want is really for the purpose of something else which means that we didn't really want it. We wanted that other thing that this led to. And why did we want that other thing? Because not for itself, but because of what it led to, which means that we really wanted that third thing, not this thing or the next thing, but the thing after that. And the thing after that we only wanted maybe for a fourth thing. Let me, let me give an example. 
you have a student who is working really hard in school, really hard in high school. You say to the student, hey, what you doing? Working really hard. Why? Because I really want to get into a good university. You really want to get into a good university? I really want to get into a good university. Why? It's a valid question, right? Why? Why do you want to get into a really good university? So this is open mic. So unmute. So tell me, imagine this hypothetical scenario, or imagine this scenario. You see a student studying really hard, high school student, and you ask them why you're studying to get into university, and you ask them to get into a good university, and you ask them why. What might they answer? Why do you want to get into a good university? Why? To get a good job afterwards. Ah, to get a good job. Good. Reasonable answer. Fair answer. Fair enough. But, but the curious and annoying questioner might ask the following question. Why do you want to get a good job? Why? Why do you want to get a good job? I, I hear what you're saying, but why? So again, unmute. This is with everybody. Why? What might the answer be? Why do you want to get a good job? Success. Success. Good. I want to be successful. Make Great. a lot of money. Making a lot of money. But again, I'm in the, the mood to be a little bit annoying. So I'm going to ask further. So why do you want to make money? <laughs> Why do you want to make money? No. Live a good life. Survive. Live a good life? Okay. Comfortable life. Comfortable. Comfortable life. All right. Good. So I'll ask the further question. Why do you want to live a comfortable life? Because it beats the heck out of living an uncomfortable life. <laughs> good. Okay. Fair enough. Good. Good, good, good. It's or what my parents want. Uh, it's <laughs> good. My mother told me to live a comfortable life. I want to live a comfortable life. I'm following orders. Good. Um, provide for a fam. Provide for a family. Family. Okay. Good. Provide for family. All right. You know, it's it's, it's yeah. said that if you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. Oh, I like it. Good. So somebody might say to the question, "Why do you work, or why do you want to work?" because I love the work. And that might be the answer that, and it might end there. But somebody else might say, cause I need the money. Or I want the money. Why do you want the money? To buy nice stuff. Why do you want to buy nice stuff? To be, to, um, what I, the point is that oftentimes when we think about what we want, we can keep on going and we ask, well, why do we want that? Why do we want that? Why do we want the other thing? Why? And we keep on going deeper, deeper, deeper. This is, it's a very instructive process in general. It really gets to the heart of what we want. So for example, in business, somebody is developing kind of a business plan. They have an idea for a business and they're working with somebody on this. And maybe that, that person is an investor, right? So that person, the investor might ask the person who's pitching the, uh, the business idea. So why, why, why do you want to create this business? Why? Anybody have experience with this, with being asked why? And you say, well, why? Because I want to do this. Nah, it's not a good answer. You say, why, why do you want to start this business? Because I want to start this business. That's not a compelling answer. Which is why when you look at mission statements for like random company, I don't mean random companies, I mean like big companies that are making, I don't know, kind of random things. They'll say, what's the mission statement? To change the world through Starbucks. I'm just 
paraphrase, I'm just making this up. I don't know if it's their actual mission statement, but it could be Starbucks mission statement to change the world one cup of coffee sip at a time. C can you imagine that mission statement? Yes. But you know where it comes from? It comes from the it comes from this process of going deeper and deeper and deeper into the why. So what do you what do you want to do? Sell coffee. Why? To make money. Yeah, but you can't tell people that mission statement is selling coffee to make money. Nope. Not compelling, but why not? Isn't it the truth? It's actually not the truth. I mean, maybe it is the truth for, for coffee, but in life, we can go deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's important to go deeper and deeper and deeper. Let me check in. Does this make sense so far, what I'm saying? Yes? Okay. So in the language of Kabbalah, this is called the difference between external will, will meaning what you want, versus internal will there's what you want superficially even if you don't think it's superficial but if you went through this exercise you would realize in retrospect oh that was a superficial thing that was a le i was thinking about things on a very superficial level or i wanted it on a very superficial level as opposed to a deep or essential will which represents what you really want so there's what you want as kind of like a means to an end, which usually leads to another means and another means and another means. And then there's what you really, really want. Like if I were to go through that exercise and just give you an example of what that, that one that I, we, let, we kind of did together a few moments ago, you know, we might end up like this. So let, let me start that again. You ask the student, why do you want to, um, why are you working so hard and, and why are you studying so late at night? I want to do well on the test. Why do you want to do well on the test? Uh, so that I could get, so I get good grades. Why do you want to get good grades? So that I get a good recommendation or a good push from my high school into university. Why do you want that to get into university? Why do I want to go to university to get a good job? Why a good job to get a good career? Why a good career to make to make a lot of money? Why a lot of money to um, to either uh, have be able to buy stuff or to be able to live a comfortable life or to provide for family? But ultimately, what's it about? It's ultimately about being at peace, being content, being happy, feeling loved or valued. At the end of the day, there's so many roads, but there aren't that many destinations of what people really, really want. Would you agree with that? Does that make sense? Right? At the end of the day, what do people want? It's usually the same handful of things, but we're all operating like all the way out there, right? If you imagine like the core, and then it expands. We're all operating in the periphery and we're all like driving ourselves crazy on the outside. When at the truth, it's not even about the outside. I'll tell you another story. I've used, I've told this to you before, but it's been at least, at least a week. <laughs> right. They, exactly. Kabbalah of happens. So there's a guy, fellow very successful in business, very wealthy man goes on vacation to the islands. He's there, he decides to go fishing. So what do you do on an island? Fishing. Goes fishing. And next to him is a, looks like a local. Looks like a fellow who's, who's out in the sun, you know, day in, day out. And this guy, he's got his bucket and his rod and whatever else you need to fish. Last time I fished was with Mark. Anyway, it's been, it's been a few years on the boat. And it, huh? I know it's been too long. It's too long. 
Uh, all right, we can change that. It's okay. There's, there's, always, there's always ways to fix it. Anyway, so here's the point. So he sees this guy. So the, the businessman who's on vacation sees the native, the local guy who's fishing. So, and, and the guy's re- a really good fisherman. He's catching, he's reeling in, he's struggling. What does he know from fishing? But this other guy, he's, oh, he's catching everything. This, the other guy, the business guy is catching tin cans, at least so the, so the uh, cliche goes. Um, or boots, right? What do you catch? Tin cans or boots? I think boots, whatever. Plastic debris. Wow, yeah, unfortunately, right? Plastic debris. Okay, so he turns to the guy and says, you're a really good fisherman. Why don't you, like, what do you do with the fish? He says, I catch some fish. I go home, I eat, I give it to some neighbors, and and I help them out, and that's it. And what do you do the next day? Same thing. What do you do tomorrow? I do this every day. He says, I don't get it. You're such a good fisherman. Why don't you catch more fish and sell? So the guy says, I hear you, but then what would I do with that? He said, well, then you would make money. Okay, and then what? Well, then you could hire more people to fish and you could have a team of fishermen. Okay, then what? You'd sell more fish and make more money. Then what? Then you can buy a boat. Buy a boat, you can go out into the water and do some, you know, I don't know, other type of fishing with more and and more fishermen and get more fish and make more money. And then what? And then you could buy a fleet of boats. And then what? And then you could buy a warehouse and a whole thing and a whole operation and go national. And then what? And go global. And then what? And then you'll have so much money to, you have so much money. And then what? And then you can retire to a peaceful island. And then what? And then you will have no worries in the world and you can go fishing all day. He says, buddy, I'm already doing that, right? That's the circle. So what happens? What happens? We get caught in these narratives, in these narratives of the world. I don't know who to blame. They're out there. This, that you have to want this, you have to have that. It's all, all this stuff, a room. It's all the stuff around. It's all getting kind of distracted by the, the external stuff. But then there's something much deeper. There's There's the essence of what we really, really want. Not what we think we want or what we want for another purpose, but there's what we really want so let me add one more piece i'm gonna add many more pieces but let me let me move this further one one more step right as long as a person doesn't know what they really want person can't be free person is enslaved to other stuff so long as a person doesn't know what they really really want they're not truly free because they're running after all this other stuff completely unaware of what it is that they really want and if they knew what they really wanted maybe they would realize there's another way to get there or that all the stuff is a distraction in the first place it's like madison avenue Tells you, oh, you want to be happy? You need all this stuff. You need to buy stuff. That's not true. It was never true. It was always a lie. It was a lie invented by people who wanted to sell stuff. Right? So they said, aha, how do we sell you on stuff? They also came up with a mission statement. By by you buying stuff, that will make you happy. Good. That's their mission statement. All about sales. It's not true. 
But as long as we buy into it, as long as we're existing on the superficial, on the external, as long as we're not in touch with who it is that we really are and what it is that we really want, we're not free. We're a slave. A slave to who? I don't know. But we're not free. We're a slave to whatever, the distractions, the other stuff, the rat race. We're not, we're not free. Redemption. Geula, redemption, is in a, in a personal sense, getting in touch with what it is that we're really about. That's a free person. A free person, a redeemed person. Not free from external shackles, but free really on the inside. It's somebody who is in touch with their inside with what it is that they really want, because then they know what's not real and they know what is real. And they're not going to get distracted by the other stuff. They're not going to get distracted by the shiny stuff that gets, you know, that gets waved in front of us. They're like, yeah, shiny stuff, whatever. I'm not about shiny stuff. I know what I want. I know who I am. I know what I need. Shiny stuff, whatever. Shiny stuff. The more in touch with our core essence we are, the more liberated we are. When we're running around after stuff that we think we want, but in truth we don't really want because we really want something else, but we don't even know that because we didn't even think it through, is when we're not free. We're a slave. We're enslaved to that rat race. And when we're liberated, we can stop the chase. We can stop chasing after things that are a waste of time. We can focus on what really speaks to us, what's really important. This is personal redemption. Personal redemption means, very simply, that a person is in touch with who they really are, what they really want at their core. And everything that's a distraction, everything that's superficial, everything that's just a stepping stone, to someone who's liberated is clearly seen as such. I know what's real. I know it's not real. I know it's essential. I know it's not essential. I know it's fundamental. I know it's secondary. I have clarity. So why is it? Why is it that we aren't all liberated? Why don't we all experience all the time this personal redemption, so to speak? Why don't we have perfect clarity of being and perfect clarity of purpose? And I'll tell you why. The reason is because we live in the land of because. I've just coined a new term. It's called the land of because. What does that mean? We live in a world in which there's always a because. There's always a reason why for something, which means that it's not in and of itself essential. We live in a world that convinces us that why should I want this? Because something else. Convincing us that the because is a primary reason when the because is only secondary. For example, Steve Jobs would get out there on stage, and now Tim Cook has taken his place. Get out there, Steve Jobs would in his 
black turtleneck and start pulling out devices from his pockets, right? One more thing, check this out, right? Oh, everyone's swooning. I'm not knocking any specific uh, thing. I'm just bringing, using an example. The world of because says, or the land of because says, that you need that latest device because this, that, or the other. Anytime you encounter a because, you know that it's not essential. If there's a because, you know it's not essential. That's your key. That's your indicator. I, the point that I've been developing is that there are things that are external and things that are internal. How do you know what's external, what's internal? The external things always have becauses. The internal things never have a because. Right. Why do you want the, uh, the good grades? Because getting into college. Why getting into college? Because I want the job. Anytime there's a because, it means that that thing is non-essential. If I ask you the question, why do you want to live? Is there a because? Why do you want to be happy? Is there a because? Why do you love your kids? Is there, I hope there's no because. <laughs> if there's a because, it means that what you're talking about is secondary. I hope that makes sense. Anytime there's a because, it means that that thing is secondary. It's only important because of something else, but it itself is not. When you hit something that's really important, there's never a because. Let me use the example of parenting. All of us either have children or were children to parents. My, my bet is if you're here in this class, you were born to parents. So that's a safe assumption. So either you have kids or have parents. Right. So there's some, you were at some point in a relationship of parent child. So think about parents. Think about a parent um, who says, I love my kid because she's so athletic. What would you, how would you react to that? I love my kid because she's such a good athlete. Would you say that's amazing? Or we'd be like, wait a second, you love your kid because? She's a great athlete. You understand what I'm saying? Is that a red flag to you also? Yes, a little bit. Not that we're judging, but this is not a real scenario anyway. I'm giving you a hypothetical. So we can judge hypotheticals, right? In this hypothetical scenario, this person says, right, that I love, I love my uh, I love my kid. She's so she's such a great athlete. Oh, sorry. No, I love my kid because she's such a great athlete. That's why you love her because she's a great athlete. That's a red flag in this hypothetical. Why is it a red flag? Because the love shouldn't be based on anything. It shouldn't be conditional. That's conditional love. I love my daughter because X, Y, and Z. I remember shortly after my daughter was born. So for those of you that, that don't know, I don't know, I'm looking around the room. I think everybody more or less knows. Uh, my family, can I know her? So we have six kids. Thank God we have five boys and a little girl. So we had boy, 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 and then girl. You know what they say? If at first you don't succeed, 
try, 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 try again. Okay. So I remember I was in Kroger in Toco Hills here in Atlanta, the kosher Kroger, or as I like to call it, Krosher. And um, I was there and somebody wished me Mazel Tov. And they said to me, I've told, I've shared this before, and meaning, meaning very well, obviously. Well, now you have, you now have, um, so you had five players for the basketball team, and now you have a cheerleader. And I'm like, hmm, I'm pretty sure she's going to be on the team also, <laughs> right? She's going to be on the team. She's not going to, I mean, nothing wrong with the cheerleading if she wants to do cheerleading. I'm just theoretically, right? But but let's not create uh, exclusions. But get, getting back to my point, you know, anytime there's a because, right? I want this because that means that you don't really want this. What you really want is what that leads to. Yeah, I want to. I want to get a good job because I want to make a lot of money. Even if we stopped it right there, then you don't want to go. Then you don't want to go to work. If you say that you want to, that you want a great job because you want to make a lot of money, then you don't want a great job. You just want to make a lot of money. If somebody offered you money without a great job, see, if you just, if you said, and I think Mark said this before, you know, someone who loves what they do, they never work a day in their life. If you say that I want a job that I love because I love what I, what I do, because I want to love what I do, then that's not a because. That's, just, that's a restatement of fact, right? I'm doing what I love, I love what I do, and that's where it ends. Somebody says, I want a great job that, that, that gives me a lot of money, so then you want the money, you don't want the job. Anytime there's a because, it means disregard this, it's really about that. So if somebody says, I love my son, yeah, I love my daughter, right? She's so smart. He's um, he's a good athlete. Whatever it is, it's a red flag. No, no, I'm sorry. It, I love because so smart, because great athlete. Then you know it's a it's a red flag. Why is it a red flag? Because now we're in the land of because. When it comes to to one's kids, it shouldn't be. We shouldn't be operating the land of because. That's a that's a core value. That's not a because value. This is all part of the deep dive into the human under, under the hood, right? Under the human hood to explore different dimensions of will and want. After 120 years, when a person passes away, it's very common that people have regrets. You look back and you think, I regret. What are the regrets about typically? Typically, people say, I regret that I didn't do things. I didn't live my most authentic life. I regret spending more time with my loved ones. The famous cliche is no one ever said, I regret not going to the office more. It's a cliche, but it's true. Why? Because going to the office isn't a core essential value. I mean, unless, again, you're doing what you love and that's how you do it. Typically, going to the office is not a core value. It's something that you do because of something else. And hopefully that leads to what you really want. But if we mistaken what is external for something internal, then everything is upside down. And then life is distorted. 
It means we're investing time and energy into the things that aren't important and neglecting things that are. The example that I gave before about the person working in his office, the father, and doesn't have time for his kids, so he cuts up a magazine and it gives him some uh, busy work, busy activity. Again, it's a hypothetical, so might as well judge a hypothetical. Would never judge in real life because it's not my place, but in the hypothetical, we might be judgmental and say, one second, one second, why are you working so hard to earn money? Why? To provide for your family. Why? Because I love my family. You love your family? Spend time with your kid. <laughs> What's the core value here? What's at the core? One second. So you're, you're putting the means in front of the ends, right? How does that make any sense? Now, it's not a criticism. It's a, I'm stating a fact, but we do this all the time. Why? Because we live in the land of because. It's because we live in a world in which what's primary is so hard to, to, to recognize, what's secondary is so easy to come by. It's because we live in a world of exile, a world of, of that's not 100% true. I want to share with you some texts. Let's do this inside. Because what we're about to do is also apply this to our spiritual reality. The same thing that applies to our human relationships, that applies to our work and our life and our families, applies also to our relationship with God. Let me preface this text by introducing the following. We're going to read a text inside in a moment. I'm not backing, I'm not backtracking on that, but I just want to share with you one more piece of introduction. There are two primary reasons why one might come to a, an appreciation or love for God. One, because Look what God does for me. God created me. God created all this stuff. You know, look at God's hooking me up with good things. I love God. Problem is, that's in the because zone, right? I love God because of all of the benefits that I'm getting. Real love, this is true in any relationship, is not when there's a because. It's love because love. I know I use the word because, sorry. But it's love for love. Why do I love? If I say because, then it's, then it's not authentic, right? The moment I give a reason is the moment that I move it away from a core essential value to a superficial commodity. It's a transactional relationship. The mission says love that's predicated on a contingency is not true love, right? If I love because of a certain reason, once that reason no longer exists, the love no longer exists. The love is only as strong as the foundation that it's built on. If it's built on a because, it's a rocky, rocky foundation. It could be that because would never change. So typically, people love because they need, they need something. They need to feel appreciated. They need to feel safe. They need to feel secure. So love is, is because of that. True love is not even because of those deep values. True love is true love. There's no because. There's no rational reason for it. So here's the rule of thumb. When you encounter a rational reason for something, you know it's not the true essence of a thing. When you encounter a rationale, a because, an explanation, it's not deep enough. When there's no explanation, that's when you hit the deepest place. 
one more example. I know we're going to get to the text. I don't know if anybody else is on edge about that. Maybe it's just me. All right. I want to, let me explain the difference between kids and iPhones. Yeah. What's the difference between a child and an iPhone? You probably never heard this question, but it's a valid question, right? Here's the difference. Imagine your iPhone is, um, imagine you dropped off your iPhone at the Apple store for, I don't know, an upgrade, something, you had a question, so you, you drop it off and you know they were looking at it and they take it back behind the counter, behind the little thing, whatever it is, and they come back and say, you know what, we were looking at it and we decided we wanna give you an upgrade. Yeah, we're gonna give you an upgrade, we're gonna give you a new device, brand new phone, you got it. What would you say? Sure, yeah, you had the iPhone 11 and they wanna upgrade you to the 12, what do you say? Sure. Imagine you drop your kid off at preschool. You come back and they say, you know what? Your kid is a little bit difficult. So what we did was we upgraded. So today you're gonna to take home a brand new kid. Came a new kid, good kid, doesn't complain, doesn't fetch, goes to bed on time, always eats the vegetables. So yeah, you're ready for the upgrade. What are you gonna say? No. I, hopefully what you're gonna say is no. I'll take my kid. Why? It's an upgrade. Kids aren't iPhones. Upgrading an iPhone is great. You know why? Because iPhones are becauses. iPhones exist in the, in the land of because. An iPhone is about, why do I have an iPhone? Because it helps me do this, that, or the other. If, if another iPhone, if the later iPhone does that better, give me the better one. Because it's all about utility. It's a utilitarian. It's a because consideration. When it comes to kids and our love for our kids, it's not because I don't love my kid because they listen, because they eat their vegetables at dinner, because they go to bed on time without complaining. It's not why I love, I love my kids. I love my kids because I love my kids, right? It's just, that's the answer. I love my kids. Why? I love my kids. There's no other because. So anytime there's a because, anytime there's a rationale, it's not deep. It's superficial, it's shallow. Anytime there's no reason, now you know you're hitting somewhere deep. When someone say, when someone asks you why and you say, I can't explain, I just, I need it, I want it, you know you're hitting something deep. That's when it's deep. Now let's look at the following text. Let's take a look at this beautiful text from the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad. This is text number four. We're going to read it together. I'm actually going to read this um, and break it down as I read it. There are two elements to the heart, namely to the soul's passion for God. In other words, there's two types, two dimensions of the soul's passion for God, an external one and an internal one. In other words, a more superficial one and a true deep essential one. Here we go. The external dimension is when the heart is impassioned at thinking of God's greatness. A passionate flame of love is ignited when one thinks deeply into such matters. Let me explain that for a moment. Somebody thinks about God's greatness. God is the creator. God made everything. God loves me. Da -da -da. So I think about all these wonderful things. Essentially think about God as a commodity. God is because, well, God, God is great. So God is, I love God because of God's greatness then it is the external dimension, the internal dimension. 
Is that core part back inside the internal dimension? Is that core part of the heart buried deep down a feeling that is far beyond reason, a feeling deeper than any thought process can conjure? In other words, the deeper core love for God is that which does not have a reason, does not have a rationale, is not, cannot be explained by any logical thought process. Take a look at this parenthesis right here. Very important. This deeper dimension exists in worldly matters as well, and that's what we've been talking about primarily tonight. There are certain matters upon which a person cares so deeply, matters upon which their entire life depends that reach to the deepest parts of the heart. At times, such matters can compel a person to say or do completely irrational things. And why is that? Why is that? Because it's not rational because it doesn't belong to the world or because, because it does not make sense. It is too deep to make sense. So here is in short, what we've been discussing up until now. Number one, number one, there are things that we want because they lead to other things, which means that we don't really want that thing. Then there are things that we want because we want them. So that because is not a real because. It's we want them, we want them. Nothing further than that. That's actually what we want. There's nothing. There's no explanation. As long as there's an explanation, we're not there yet. As long as there's a because, I want this because of something else, then it's not real. It's not what we really want. As long as there's a rationale, as long as there's an explanation, it's not, it's not the core. It's not the essence. When we have no explanation, when we have just a sense of this is it, then we know we're touching on something deep. And when we get in touch with that, when, we, when, we, when we're aware of what it is that we really want, not for any other reason, then we're liberated. This could be liberation on a physical level, spiritual level, both physical and spiritual together. All of these are truths that apply both to our physical lives and our spiritual lives. Within the physical realm, as we just read in the parentheses, you can go deeper and deeper and deeper into what, what we really want. Spiritually, even with God. You can love God because of what you get or love God simply because you love God, which is not a real because. It's just loving God. That's the deepest part of the soul. Let me check in and make sure this makes sense because we're about to, to pivot back and address all of our questions that we asked at the beginning of the class and walk away hopefully with some powerful life lessons in the here and now. So let me just turn this back and open this back up to everyone. Questions or comments thus far on this explanation of different types, different dimensions of will and want. Does anybody want to ask, the, to ask a question? Any questions? Or does it all make sense? All make sense? Yes? Okay. So let's start, in, let's go in backwards. 
let's start from question three and work backwards. I'm going to reset questions one, two, and three. We asked three questions before. Question one was, um, why is it that the mission says that one has to believe in resurrection being sourced in Torah? Why not just resurrection? Because I think there's resurrection. Question number two was, why is resurrection split out by Maimonides as its own principle of faith? Isn't it part of the Messianic era, which is principle number 12? And the third question was, why does the Talmud say that Mashiach is going to come when we're not expecting it? Why is that a precondition for Mashiach's arrival? And, and, and if that's the case, then why are we thinking about it? So I need to, I need to, we're going to address this question first. Hesach Adas, I'm using the Hebrew or the, um, is it Aramaic or Hebrew? I don't know. It's from the Talmud. The Talmudic expression Hesach Adas could mean uh, when we're not aware, but it also means something much deeper. Hesach Adas means not just we've diverted our attention from something. What it means is that, or or distracted. Looking back at, at the at the at the comments, or just it doesn't just mean that we're distracted. Hesachadas means that it's super rational, right? That is rationale. Hesachadas means that it's removed from rationale. How do we view Mashiach? Is it a rational thing? Does it make sense? Is it something that's logical? A person could say, I believe it makes sense. Makes sense. Makes sense that the world is evolving, that people are evolving, things are getting better. And so I believe that Mashiach is the natural culmination of that. Talmud says that's not Mashiach. Mashiach is not a rational consideration. Mashiach will come behesach hadas. Mashiach is super rational. Because anything that's rational means that it's not the core element and it's not in a redeemed state. Mashiach comes when you and I stop living in the land of rationale, the land of because. When we can move past, let's just speak on a personal level first, because the way we make our puzzle is the way the global puzzle is made, right? So when we move past our the limitations of our logic and rationale, we can then break through that on a cosmic level as well. Take a look at the text I'm about to share with you. This is again from the Alter Rebbe, from the same, the same author of text number four. Okay, he continues with text number, hold on, no, 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 not text number five. Text number, nope, not six. Text number, um, yeah, text number seven. It's all a series of texts. I'm skipping out some uh, to get to the big finish here. Text number seven. Regarding, take a look. Regarding the coming of Mashiach, it is stated, and your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring so that you may love your God with all your heart and with all your soul, for he is your life. In other words, a person ought to love God because God is indeed their very source of life. This is a deep love that stems from the heart's very core, far beyond any reason. And I need to explain. This because, on that last line, 
In other words, a person ought to love God because God is indeed their life. That's not a real because. That's a fake because. In other words, why do you love God? Because is your life. That's not a real because. God, I love God. God is my life. That's not a because. That is a that's a statement of fact. It's kind of like saying, why do you love your why do you love your life? Because it's my life. That's not a real because. This is rather the deep love that stems from the heart's core beyond reason. It's not a because, it's beyond reason. Super rational. So he continues, and this is what I was saying a moment ago. Mashiach will only come with Hesachadas, which he translates. This is Kabbalistically, he translates as not when you're diverted, your attention is diverted, but no removal of reason. The Talmud speaks here of that core part of the heart emerging for the entirety of the Jewish nation and simultaneously the Shekhinah emerging from captivity for all eternity. As long as we are operating in the realm of reason, as long as we are operating limited by logic, as long as we are operating in the land of because we are not redeemed, we are not free, we are not liberated. Internal liberation happens when we go beyond reason, when we remove reason, when we remove the limitations of reason, when we go beyond the land of because. It's when we go to the core, and in this example, he uses the example of loving God. It's when we love God, not because God is great, or because God does this for me or that for me, but because God is life and is my life, which is not a because. It's a statement of fact. It's the core. It's the core of love. When we go to that place, that's redemption. That's Mashiach. When we go beyond reason, beyond rationale, that is, that doesn't trigger redemption. That is redemption. Like I said before in the, in the human example, when you and I are operating, when you and I are convinced by the world that we need to do all of these things, we need to buy the latest this, the latest gadget, the latest fashion, the latest styles, all this, these things, because the world, because Madison Avenue told me that if I have that, then I'll be whatever it is. We're not free. We're enslaved, enslaved to this machine. Consumerism, in this example, enslaved, plugged into the matrix like robots. It's not freedom. What is freedom? Who's more free? The businessman in the island or the guy that's already retired fishing all day? Who's more free? Yeah, the businessman has a great idea. You do this, you do that, you do the other, and then one day you'll be so wealthy you can retire to an island and go fishing all day. That guy's free, right? He's stuck in a place where you need to do all of this process for what? Oh, for that core value? I already have it. And I cut out all the other stuff. It's a waste of time, right? So what's the point? As long as we're operating in reason and rationale and the land of because, we're not free. We're free the moment we say, I know what I really want and I know how to get it. And I'm not getting distracted by any other thing. So this is what it means that Mashiach is going to come with Hesach Hadas. Mashiach comes when we step away from the limitations of logic and reason, when we embrace the core, when we step away from all of the distractions and we go hone in on the core of what truth is, that is Mashiach. That is personal redemption. And if enough people become personally redeemed, that triggers global redemption. That answers question number three. Question number two was, 
Why is the resurrection of the dead a separate principle of faith than the coming of Mashiach? Isn't it all part of one big, you know, one big category? Not so fast. Because even within this super rational concept of Mashiach, which we just spoke about, Mashiach comes by Hesachadas, with it's beyond reason, but even within that, Mashiach is still more logical than resurrection of the dead. Mashiach, as I said, Mashiach could be the culmination, logical culmination of, of, of progress. There's been, Mashiach is really about redemption. There's been redemptions before. We had the redemption from Egypt, the Exodus. So we've seen this movie before. But the resurrection of the dead, that's out there. That's far out there. That defies reason and logic. And when you have something, when you touch something that defies reason and logic, then you know you're touching on something very deep. So that's why Maimonides breaks out principle number 13 out of number 12. That's why he has two different principles. There's the one belief in Mashiach and belief in the resurrection of the dead. Because as super rational as Mashiach is, resurrection of the dead takes it to the bank. That takes it to the next level of that which is super rational. And when it's super rational, when it's beyond reason and logic, when it's beyond the, when it's out the land, out of the land of because, that's what makes it. That's what makes it liberating. That's what makes it true. That's what makes it free. So we find some very interesting details regarding the resurrection of the dead. Oh, you know what? Let me just give one more, one more piece, and then I'm going to get to the interesting details. I'll even share uh, another text or two. This also answers our first question. Why is it that the resurrection of the dead needs to be believed that it comes from Torah itself? What if I just believe in the resurrection of the dead and I don't think it's sourced in Torah? I believe. I, I have my own reasons why I believe in the resurrection because that would undo the whole point. <laughs> the whole point of the, believing the resurrection is that there's no because, there's no rationale, there's no reason. Why? It's in Torah. That's not a reason. That's just a statement of fact. It's stated as truth, so it's true. If the moment I believe that it's resurrection is going to happen because of X, Y, and Z is the moment that I've reduced it away from being a core principle to being somewhere in the external, um, the external realm of, of, um, of belief. I'm going to share with you the, a few more texts that bring this home. Take a look at text number eight. This is from Rabbi Moshe Levi Epstein. Take a look at what he writes. Believing in Mashiach, the difference between the belief in the Messiah and the belief in the resurrection. Believing in Mashiach is, is a relatively logical matter. You see that? Logical. After all, it makes sense that God's cherished nation won't be downtrodden and exiled forever, as it is a desecration of God's name. What's more, it doesn't lack precedent, for there already was the exodus from Egypt. While it's true that the exodus was not permanent, it does indicate the possibility of a permanent redemption. By contrast, there is no compelling logic for the concept of the resurrection of the dead creating a situation in which one can constantly doubt it. Thus, it is necessary to found one's belief in it on the Torah, as that fortifies the belief in a way that, like our belief in the rest of Torah, it shall not falter. So it's when we believe in the resurrection of the dead simply because the Torah says it, that it is a super rational belief, it's not based on our calculations. It's not based on our logical conclusion. It's not based on our, you know, I figured out that it makes sense. No, it doesn't make sense. So then why do we say it's going to happen? 
The Torah says it. I have no rational explanation. The Torah says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's when we suspend our reason that we know we're touching something deep. It's like when we love our kids for no reason. We know it's deep love. When we embrace the resurrection of the dead for no reason. And we know that it's something deep and real. This explains some very curious details of the process of resurrection. And I'm going to share with you the following Midrash text number nine. You may be familiar with this. The Midrash here discusses how will God resurrect the body, which is a very good discussion to have in a course about the resurrection of the dead. Let's, let's read this. Hadrian, may his memory be erased. Um, hold on. Yeah. Hadrian, may his memory be erased, once asked Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya. Hadrian was a wicked emperor who killed a lot of, uh, a lot of good people. So he once asked Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya, from what will God resurrect man in the future world? In other words, you guys believe in the resurrection. What's God going to use to resurrect the body? Rabbi Yeshua replied, from the luz in the spine. Luz. Okay, in the spine. Hadrian says, prove this to me. The rabbi took a luz, which is a small bone of the spine, and immersed it in water, but it was not softened. He put this uh, small bone into, into the fire, but it was not consumed. He put it into a mill, but it could not be ground. He placed it upon an anvil and struck it with a hammer, but the anvil split and the hammer was broken. And of course, the bone remained. What's the message? The message is that God is going to take this little bone. It says that it's a very little bone. Some say it's um, the, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in autonomy, in anatomy, sorry. Um, I can't even clearly say it on the first go around even. Um, but it's the, is it pronounced coccyx? Yes. There's a bone that's, okay, yes. Some say it's that bone. Some say it's, and where is that? Um, anyone, uh, any, uh, all the doctors weigh in the on tailbone. this? tailbone. Okay, the tailbone, good. The tailbone. And then yeah. there's another opinion that says yeah, it's the bone. And another opinion says it's the bone that is in the back of the neck where the tefillin knot rests right beneath. So I don't know what that's called, but if you reach in the back of your head, you'll feel that there's like a, the bone and then beneath, beneath it, it's a little bit soft. So that bone, right, right, where, right above where, it, where it's soft, that's the bone that's called the loose bone, according to some opinions. So we have a difference of opinion as to what the loose bone is. Um, axis, atlas, what is that? That's what it's called? Names of the bones. Oh, okay. I thought we were doing like uh, cartography or something. Oh, let's map. Let's uh, 49 degrees due south. Anyway, axis, atlas. Yeah, so the, there's a bone here, either the bone there or the bone in the, in, the, in, the, in the base of the spine. Either way, there's a small bone that is, according to our tradition, indestructible. Indestructible. You can hit it. You can burn it. You go, there's always a remnant of the bone remaining. And it says in the, in the commentary, it says, sorry, in the, it says in the Talmud, and it's in the Zohar and Kabbalah as well, it says that God will take the dew of redemption, the tal shal the dew of redemption, and place it on the bone, the bone will soften. And in some sources, it says it's going to ferment 
like um, like when you put yeast and dough and, and it rises and whatever. So it's got not literally ferment like it's but but it means that the bone is going to start like, I don't know, getting <laughs> expanding until it blossoms into a regenerated body. That's what it says. And the 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 logical person might say, you know, if you told me that God would just make a new body, I'd, I get it. But you're telling me there's this bone that no one ever sees. You, you dig up remains, you don't find anything. Or I mean, I guess you do find, but you tell me that there's a little bone that, that is indestructible. And from that, there's this dew of redemption that mixes with it and softens it because water doesn't soften, but the dew of redemption does soften it, does soften it. And that expands and becomes a body. Are you kidding me? Is that rational? It's not rational. And that's kind of the point. The things that are rational are usually not so deep. Right. Rational love is I love my kid because they come home with good grades, but that's not deep love. That's land of because love. And that love has an end to it because the moment the grades are not so good. Uh oh, if I love because of the grades, uh oh, we don't believe in redemption because it makes sense. That would make it a very limited reality. Right. I believe. Uh, sorry, not redemption, resurrection. I believe in resurrection because it makes sense. No, it's a little bit deeper than that. This is this is resurrection of the dead, after all, part of the redemption, part of the messianic era, and that is the deepest. And so, my friends, what we've seen tonight is the following. There are things that are important because of other things, and then there are things that are important just because they're important. And those things don't usually have rational explanations, which is why the belief in the resurrection of the dead is only because Torah said so, not because it makes sense. It's why the details of the res resurrection don't really make sense because it's not meant to make sense. It's an articulation of faith and belief that transcends logic, transcends reason. When we have the ability to suspend logic and reason, we have the ability to surrender to something greater than ourselves, then we know we're touching on something deeper. We know this from our own experience. Our heads, as wonderful as they are, they keep us limited, they keep us locked in, and they can also keep us distracted from what's really important. So as we think about tonight's class, and there's a lot of really important topics, and I hope the overall picture and the steps kind of uh, make sense and gel. But as we think about tonight's class, let us commit to doing something a little bit freeing and liberating, something that's not so logical, something that's a little bit beyond our comfort zone. It's those things that are beyond the rational that really liberate us. It's like jumping into that cold ocean when you didn't want to, because it doesn't make sense, because it's freezing cold, that brings out pure joy. Maybe just screaming because of the cold, but also glee and joy of being free and not being stuck in our own heads. So as a practical resolution from tonight's class, all in order to help pave the stones on this path toward Mashiach and toward the resurrection of the dead. Let's think about one mitzvah. One mitzvah that we haven't yet embraced or done or done consistently because we don't really get it because it doesn't really make much sense because, you know, it's the logical stuff. I get this one. I don't know. Doesn't really, doesn't really make sense to me. And let's focus on that one. one. One of those that don't really make so much sense and recognize that it's in those areas that allow, that call on us to stretch 
our minds, to stretch or out to break outside of our minds. But the magic really lies. That's where, that's where the beauty and redemption really is to be found. So the resurrection of the dead is not logical. The details aren't logical. The source is not a logical source. Just Torah says so. And that's indicative of its true power and its place in our lives. Thank you very much for joining me for lesson number two of Resurrection of the Dead. Next week, same bad time, same bad channel, we will explore the idea of death itself. This is going to be the core discussion next week. Why is it? If ultimately everyone is going to come back, Resurrection of the Dead, so then why did we have to go away to begin with, right? Why death? If the future is life in a body, then why death in the first place? We're going to explore this on multiple levels in a beautiful and magnificent conversation about the nature of life, the nature of death, and why it is that sometimes it's not wise to build on the successes of the past. All of that coming up next week, next Thursday night at 8 p.m., lesson number three of Resurrection. Um, Alex is asking for sending the text for this course. I will, um, let me work on that. It's a bit of a composite, but I'm going to work on that and try to send you guys some text so you can have it to review it before and after, etc. cetera. Um, also, quick announcement, second announcement, this Tuesday night, 8 p.m., we have the archaeological claim to Jerusalem, secrets that others do not want you to know. This is going to be an excavation, virtual, online, on Zoom excavation of the holy city of Jerusalem to explore the secrets buried by time and revealed for us in our generation. Don't miss this. It's with uh, Rabbi Avram Stolik, a.k.a. the Jewish Indiana Jones. It's going to be a blast, so please join us for that. All right, questions or comments before we close out? Open mic. Jump in. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. All right. Um, going once, going twice. All right. Friends, Laila Tov, Shabbat Shalom. We'll see you guys soon. Thank you, Yashkoa. Take care.